0: The famine had broken under God's hand. Ruth had bound herself to Naomi in love. And unbeknownst to both of them, Boaz had been preserved, waiting back in the homeland. But at the end of chapter 1, Naomi is completely overwhelmed with her losses and says, The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. But in chapter 2, the mercy of God becomes so bright, cracking through those big gray clouds that even Naomi, by the end of the chapter, can see it. We meet Boaz, a man of wealth and a man of God, and a relative who can fulfill the role of that kinsman-redeemer. We meet Ruth, taking refuge under the wings of God in a foreign land and being led mercifully to a field... Seemingly coincidentally of Boaz. And we meet Naomi recovering from her long despondency as she exalts in God. She says in verse 20, The Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So chapter 2 overflows with hope. Boaz is a God-saturated man in his business and personal affairs. Ruth is a God-dependent young woman under the wings of God. Naomi is a God-exalting woman under the sovereignty of God. And all the darkness of chapter 1 is blown away in chapter 2. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, gives way in chapter 2, to the kindness of the Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead. I think the lesson from those two chapters is you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. So seek refuge under the wings of God and even when it looks like all shadows, before you know it, the wings of the mighty eagle are going to lift And out of that eagle's nest, you are going to see a spectacular ravine. Chapter 3 for today. The phrase I want you to think about through chapter 3 is this. The phrase, strategic righteousness. Strategic righteousness. The question that I think chapter 3 tries to answer is, What does a God-saturated man and a God-dependent young woman and a God-exalting older woman do when they are overflowing with hope in a sovereign, good God? And the answer, I think, of chapter 3 is strategic righteousness. Now, by righteousness, I simply mean a zeal to do what's right. A zeal to do what's good, what's appropriate, when God is taken into account. And by strategic, I mean something that's intentional, something that's planned and purposeful. There's a lot of passive righteousness. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. And some people's ethic is simply avoidance. Just an avoidance ethic. Stay out of the way of evil when it presents itself. And that's not what I mean by strategic righteousness. Strategic righteousness is when you look at wrong and you plan to change it. You want to make things right. You just just want to stay out of the way of evil. And I think one of the lessons of chapter 3 in relation to chapter 2 is that hope helps us dream about righteousness. Hope helps us think up ways to do good. Hope helps us pursue virtue and integrity in life. It's hopelessness, the feeling of hopelessness that makes people feel like they've got to steal and lie and seize the pleasure of the moment in order to make life worthwhile. But hope, based on the confidence in a sovereign God that He is for us. Yields in our hearts a thrilling impulse that I call strategic righteousness. And we're going to see it in Naomi in verses 1 through 5, Ruth in verses 6 through 9, and in Boaz in verses 10 through 15. And then the chapter closes with a great statement of confidence from Naomi again that everything is going to work out indeed today. So let's read the chapter together and then we'll take it in those pieces. Ruth, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek a home for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maidens you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had told her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. The author means for, it, for you to be just as quiet as you are right now. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your skirt over your maidservant, for you are next of kin." And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of worth. And now it is true that I am a near kinsman, yet there is a kinsman nearer than I. Remain this night and in the morning, if he will do the part of the next of kin for you well, let him do it. But if he is not willing to do the part of the next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will do the part of the next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, "'Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor.' And he said, "'Bring the mantle you are wearing and hold it out.' So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and laid it upon her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "'How did you fare, my daughter?' and then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Two things stand out in the first five verses where we meet Naomi's strategy. One is that she has a strategy, and the other is what the strategy is. The fact that Naomi has a strategy teaches us something, I think. People who feel like victims usually don't form strategies. She was so oppressed in the first three chapters, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, and you don't find her taking An interest in Ruth and planning a strategy for Ruth's future? One of the terrible effects of depression is that it makes you unable to walk into the future with purposefulness and hope. Strategies of righteousness are the overflow of hope. And Naomi had awakened in verse 20 to the kindness of God. Her hope comes alive and the next thing you see her doing is strategizing to get Ruth, a husband, so that she might be secure. One of the reasons that we have to make it high on our agenda here at Bethlehem to encourage each other to hope in God, like the sign says in the parking lot, is because a church without hope is a church that will not plan. A church that doesn't feel The wings of God, hopefully hovering overhead, ready to move in some great direction, will simply go into a maintenance mentality and carry on business as usual, week in, week out. And nobody will dream a dream, nobody will form a strategy, and nobody will change anything or affect the world. But if we sense God hovering, and the mighty God moving, and our hearts begin to fill with hope, then many people in the church will begin to dream dreams, as indeed is happening in many of you at Bethlehem. Naomi took the initiative to get a husband for Ruth. But the strategy that she comes up with is odd, to say the least. Verse 2, she says that Boaz is a kinsman. And therefore, he's a likely candidate for Ruth to marry. Because according to the Hebrew custom, if a close kinsman called a redeemer in this text would marry the widow, then he could preserve the name and keep the inheritance from going outside the family. And this would be a great act of righteousness and kindness towards Ruth and towards Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi. So Naomi's aim is clear. She aims to win a godly husband for Ruth. So she tells Ruth to make herself clean, wash, take a bath. Then put on your very best clothing. Make yourself beautiful and go down to the threshing floor tonight where Boaz is going to be working with his men and wait until he has eaten and drunk and then when he goes to bed, you crawl under the covers with him at his feet and wait and see what he says to do. Now, Everybody, including Ruth, must respond to this by saying, and just what do you suppose this will lead to, Naomi? To which Naomi gives the extraordinary answer, he will tell you what to do. Now, one thing is clear and one thing is not clear from this situation. The thing that's clear is that Naomi means for Ruth to win Boaz for husband. And what's not clear is why she should go about it like this. Why not a conversation with Boaz in the afternoon? Instead of this extraordinarily suggestive and risky midnight maneuver. Was Naomi indifferent to the possibility that Boaz might drive this woman away? He is a holy man. He could have her stoned. Or was she indifferent to the possibility that she might be placing before Boaz a temptation he could not resist, resulting in sexual relations between Ruth and Boaz, though they aren't married? Or is that exactly what she wanted to happen? so that he'd be hooked. The author of this book doesn't make it easy for us to see the answer to that question. There is a clue coming, I think, that will help us put this together. But the author is not interested in showing it to us just yet. In fact, he seems to be very intent on leaving us in suspense and in ambiguity Just where did she lie down at his feet? What does that mean? And just what did Naomi expect Boaz to say? We're not told. We're just kept right on the brink, on the edge of our chairs here. Whatever Naomi's motive was, the situation is one that could either lead to a passionate, illicit, sexual intercourse scene or to a stunning scene of purity and integrity and self-control. Let's look at how Ruth picked up on Naomi's strategic righteousness. Now, it may not yet appear as righteousness to you, but I hope before we're done... I can exonerate Naomi. Verses 6 through 9. Verse 5 says that Naomi or uh, Ruth was ready to do just what Naomi said. But she does more than Naomi said. Naomi had said that Boaz would tell Ruth what to do. But in fact, Ruth tells Boaz what to do. She's lying there at his feet under his cloak and he wakes up at midnight and says, Who are you? And she answers unprompted by Naomi, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Spread your skirt over your maidservant for you are next of kin." Now Ruth is not merely Naomi's pawn here. She is willing in what she is doing, and she has now taken the initiative to make clear to Boaz why she's come. The key words, you are the next of kin, says very plainly to Boaz, I'd like to be your wife. She doesn't come out and say it in those words, but that's what she means, and he knows it. In fact, the way she says it, if you think Naomi has been enticing, what in the world are we to make of the words, spread your skirt over me? Now, whether Boaz takes this to be an outright offer of sexual relations or something more subtle and profound is going to depend on Boaz's estimation of Ruth's character. Fornication was wrong in the Old Testament. It says so in Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Fornication was wrong in the New Testament. It's wrong today. And Ruth was a woman of worth, he said. Ruth was a woman who took refuge under the wings of God. Ruth was a woman who committed herself with all passion to take care of her mother-in-law. She was not a loose woman. But there are two other clues in this text that something more is going on here than simply, let's have sexual intercourse tonight and then you'll be committed to me. Here's the first thing. I took my concordance to find where else the phrase spread the skirt was found in the Bible. It's only found one other place that I could find in the Old Testament in relation to people in love. It's in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, and God is the lover. And He's speaking to Israel, His betrothed. And it says in Ezekiel 16, 8, God speaking, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, behold... You were at the age for love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yea, I plighted my troth to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine. Now, if Ruth's language is pointing in the direction of God's relation to Israel then more is at stake here than just sexual relations. She is saying, in effect, I would like to be the one with whom you form a covenant. I would like to be the one with whom you betroth yourself in faithfulness. But there's more yet to what's going on here. And this is going to be the key that, to me, opened up the whole chapter. This phrase, spread your skirt over me, You know what the Hebrew word for skirt is here? It's the word wing. There's only one other place where the word wing is used in this book. And it's used in the main text we looked at last week, chapter 2, verse 12. Where Boaz says to Ruth, The Lord recompense you for what you have done, that is, in caring for your mother-in-law. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. But now remember what we saw last week, that even though Boaz was admiring and congratulating Ruth for taking refuge under God's wings... Boaz was acting like the agent of God and caring for Ruth. He gave her free access to his field. He gave her protection from the young men. He gave her water from the well. And Ruth had said, Why have I found favor from you, Boaz? And Boaz had responded, Because you have taken refuge under the wings of God. So here's what I think is going on in chapter 3. Ruth has gone home to Naomi after this marvelous encounter with Boaz and has told her about what the man said. And the longer that Ruth and Naomi ponder the words and the actions of Boaz, the more they come to see them as laden with subtle, loving invitations to Ruth. What Boaz really means is because you take refuge under the wings of God, you're the kind of woman I would like to take under my wings. It's not easy for an older man to say that he has fallen in love with a younger woman. I reckon Boaz to be a middle-aged man, 50s maybe. I infer that from two things. He keeps calling Ruth his daughter. Very frustrating as you read the story. Stop doing that, you want to say. The other reason is he says to her in this night, God bless you that you didn't go after young men. Boaz is an older man, and he's fallen in love with this 25-year-old woman. I get that from the fact that 10 years elapsed between the time she got married and the time they came back, and probably they married between 15 and 20. So he's 20, 30 years older than she is, and he's in love with her. What's he supposed to do? It isn't easy always for an older man to say to a young woman, I love you, would you marry me? Because the main thing that goes through the older man's mind is she's probably madly in love with one of these handsome blokes around here. Naomi and Ruth hit upon a scheme to answer with the same subtlety that Boaz used to communicate to Ruth. Boaz had mingled two things. He had done everything he could to show that his wings were outspread over this woman. I want to be your protector and your provider. And he had put it in words like... uh, I do this because you've come under the wings of God. And I admire women like that. Now, Naomi and Ruth think about this. And they think. And they wonder, how shall we respond to this man's approaches? He is delicate. He is sensitive. He is subtle. And they hit upon a plan. Ruth will come to him in his sleep on the grain floor where he has shown her so much care. And she will say to him, yes. But she will say it with an action just as subtle, just as profound as the action and the words of Boaz. So she crawls under his wing and waits. To see whether she has interpreted him correctly. And Boaz wakes up at midnight. And if you put yourself in the situation here. And into Ruth's heart. And what she's about to say. Because everything hangs. On whether this clicks with Boaz. She says to him. Spread your wing over me. And then there's. There had to have been this immense moment of silence while Boaz, the older man, allows himself to believe that she has really understood. A middle-aged man in love with a young woman whom he discreetly calls my daughter, uncertain whether her heart might be going after the younger man, communicating as best he can with deeds and subtle words, a young widow gradually reading between the lines and finally ready to risk an interpretation by coming in the middle of the night to take refuge under the wing of his garment. That's powerful stuff. Anybody that thinks that there's a finagling mother-in-law and a loose woman at work here is on another planet. From the author of this text. But the most startling thing is yet to come. We think it's pretty much settled, and then comes Boaz and his strategic righteousness in verses 10 through 15. Now, before we read what Boaz says, you've got to recreate the scene. You've got to read stories like this with your imagination. The stars are out, maybe a big moon, it's midnight. Everybody's asleep. They're way at the end of the granary. Boaz loves Ruth. Ruth is falling in love with Boaz. She is under his blanket at his feet. And he wakes up. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Oh, Boaz. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of worth. And then comes this unbelievably magnificent act of righteousness and self-control. He says, Ruth, according to custom, there is a man who has a prior claim upon you. And I can't proceed until all the affairs are duly settled with this man. Stay at my feet until the morning and I'll see what I can do. Good grief. The stars are shining. It's midnight. They love each other. They are alone. She is under his cloak and he stops it for the sake of righteousness. Unbelievable to 20th century morality. What a man. What a woman. Listen. The mood of... Twentieth century American life is, if it feels good, do it. And to hell with all of your puritanical principles that cause me guilt. But I say unto you, if the stars are shining bright over your head and your blood is thudding like a hammer... And you are safe in the privacy of your place. Stop. And let the sun come up on your purity. And your righteousness. And your strength. Until all the righteous affairs are settled. So don't be like the world, people. Be like Boaz, be like Ruth, profoundly in love with each other, subtle and perceptive in all their communications, powerful in self-control and committed to strategic righteousness. Shall we pray? Almighty God, I pray that the people in this room who have already compromised their own sexual impurity or purity will find forgiveness from you right now, who blew it already in their past and wish they had it to do over again but don't. May they know that that same strength can be found for the rest of their lives. There is a new day. There is strength. There is a glorious possibility. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that we will not be duped by the insidious lie of the world to the effect that there is some kind of macho strength in falling for your animal drive. That is crazy. How can it be great to be like a dog in heat? Oh God, make us like Boaz, make us like Ruth. Mighty in self-control because of the Holy Spirit. Mighty in righteousness for your great namesake. Amen.